The book of Acts. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Acts chapter 14, verse 8, it says this, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, and Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, Lord, that by your word, by faith in your promises, Lord, that we as a church, as men and women, would stand up and walk in faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So again, we're right in the middle of the book of Acts, the story of what happened after Jesus was resurrected and taken up into heaven. And this book is high drama, all 28 chapters, and we're right in the the thick of it, the beginning of chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas sent out by a church, very extraordinary for the time, no church had ever done that. In fact, the people of God had never done that. No one had ever been sent out. Actually, in the history of the Bible, there was one exception, of course, Jonah, and he wound up in the belly of the whale because he resisted uh, God's will uh, and uh, went eventually and did the will of the Lord. But uh, here, Paul and Barnabas are in the middle of their first journey, and oh, did they see the hand of God in their lives and over their ministry. And I I really, as we go through the book of Acts, I just want you to really pay attention to that, this principle, that if you follow God's calling on your life, his will for your life, oh, will you see his handy work. So oftentimes, I'm in counseling, and people are... Uh, are in despair. They're dried up because they don't see the hand of the Lord in their life. And so oftentimes, the real, real issue is they're not being obedient to the Word of God or God's call in their life. So often, and we learn from the book of Acts that um, what can happen if a man or woman of God follows uh, the, the will of God. So we are in the middle of their journey. Actually, let's, um, let's pull this aside and, and get the map up again because I just want to show you where we are here uh, in this journey. Just as a, as, a, as a visual here, I have this little laser light this morning. Is, that, is this working? All right. And so they started here, down here in Jerusalem, but they actually were sent off from right here, Antioch. They first went to Cyprus. Then they went um, up here to another Antioch. There's an Antioch here where they were sent out from. Here's another Antioch. And now today they are in Lystra. By the end of the chapter, they're going to go to Derby right here. And then 
back to these places and then back to Antioch. Uh, and so Italy is uh, over here. Eventually, they're going to come back, and they're going to go back and make their way to uh, these areas over here. And then, uh, and then at the end of the book of Acts, they're going to go all the way to Rome. So just wanted you to uh, be aware of that. Okay, you can pull the lights again. I just think it's important that we see where we've been and where we're going there. Thanks, guys. Aren't these guys wonderful here? Actually, we're going to, uh, in spite of the fact I love this moving act, we, we're going to be getting dual projectors so, uh, in a few weeks, so we won't have that problem anymore. But anyway, so uh, they're the uh, beginning of the uh, Acts chapter 14. They're in Iconium. And in Iconium, uh, we saw a great division of the city. It says in verse 4 there, it says, the multitude of the city was divided. Now, what did we say last week was what divided them? Grace divided them. Very good. All right. Yes, it was grace. Grace divides. You bet it does. Particularly in churches uh, in the case of Iconium, it was a synagogue, but where there are churches that have been poisoned by religion. God wants relationship, not religion. Nowhere in the Bible do you see the word religion. Religion means, is a Latin word actually that came about, I don't know, fourth or fifth century, uh, a word, and it means to reconnect, reconnect with God. It's, it's a, a uh, it's attempt, a man's attempt to reconnect to God with rules and r- rituals and human tradition. Spiritual looking on the outside, dead on the inside. That's what religion uh, looks like. And when grace is injected into a religious environment, it's just like oil and water. It, it divides. Jesus, 75% of his ministry, was really coming against religion. He said in Luke eleven forty six to the religious leaders, Woe to you, for you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So, and boy, did he divide the people. And so Paul and Barnabas, the beginning of chapter 13, they go out into uh, Iconium, they declare to the people, look, look, there's no law you can, or set of laws you can follow to get yourself into heaven. Uh, it, only by faith in what Jesus Christ did for you can you get into heaven. You're no longer under the law. You're under grace. So, Wow, if that message is true, that means everyone in the city is on a level playing field. The really, really religious people and everybody else, they're all equal standing before God. So one half of the city in Iconium uh, said, wow, this is the best news we've ever heard. The, the other half said you, uh, said, you know, you mean to say that for the last 10 years I've been meticulously following the law and I'm in... I'm no closer to God than the guy next to me who's been uh, rolling around in the muck and the mire? And they said, yes. And there was division, division in the, in the city. And, and over time, uh, they went from the anti-grace crowd, and there's an anti-grace 
crowd that's alive and well today in the world, but they went from being loud to being violent, and uh, they ran Paul and Barnabas right out of town. Verse 6 says they became aware of it, so they, be, they, they, they actually, Paul and Barnabas became aware that they were going to get violent. It says they fled to Lystra and Derby, the cities of, of Lyconia and the surrounding cities. So that's sort of the middle of the, the highlands of modern-day Turkey where uh, we were just, um, uh, we just saw it on the map. And so that's where we pick up in verse 8. It says, and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, and Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and he walked. So Paul here is able to see, he is able to see that this man had the faith to be healed. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, there is a list of spiritual gifts that God gives to the church. One of those gifts is a word of knowledge. And when God supernaturally gives you a word of knowledge, uh, he gives you something about someone, a knowledge about someone that it's impossible to otherwise know. I believe this here is a manifestation of that gift. Paul's given a word of knowledge from God. This man right in front of you has the faith to be healed. And so Paul says to him in a loud voice, stand up straight. And he says, stand up straight on your feet. I tell you, you better really know that you've heard from God before you say that to someone. I heard a story about C.T. Studd. He's a he was a missionary to Africa in the 1800s, and people used to come up to him in wheelchairs and crutches, and he used to take the wheelchairs and crushes, and he used to smash them and destroy them. He used to take their glasses and stomp on them with his feet and crush them, and then he would pray for them, and they would be healed. Man, you better... You better really know that you've heard from God before you do something like that. It was also reported that people came after him, tried to imitate him. They crushed the glasses, the wheelchairs, and crutches, and the people weren't healed. There's a lot of explaining uh, for uh, them to, uh, to do. It's not God's will for everyone to be healed from every illness, but it was here in Acts chapter 14. Uh, this man was healed. Paul said to him in a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and he walked. So a question for you, and I I ask this question to my own heart as well. What would happen if, what would have happened if this man had heard Paul's command to stand up, but he made no effort to stand up? what would have happened? Nothing, right? Kind of an obvious question. Nothing. Nothing would have happened. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that very thing happen, nothing, in Christians' lives who are given the promise of God to free them from bondage. This man was in a bondage, many other kinds of bondages. 
but they refuse to take the first step towards freedom. And just as this lame man was bound up in his condition for years and years, they're bound up in bitterness and unforgiveness, or they're bound up in sexual addiction, or they're bound up in alcohol or drug addiction. They hear what the Word of God says about their condition. It says this, John 8, 36, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. They hear Romans 6, 7, which says, anyone who has died with Christ has been freed from sin. They hear Romans 7, 24, where Paul declares, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. They hear the Word of God telling them to stand up and walk in freedom but they stay on the ground. Can't tell you how many times I've seen this. They refuse to make that first move and get up. What happens? Nothing. And they remain lame, paralyzed in their condition, and so oftentimes you hear them pin the, pl- the blame on God. They say, they, they sit around on the ground in their bound-up condition, and they say, you know, well, I've prayed that God would take away this desire, and he hasn't yet. I'm telling you, I've, I've heard this line from, from people for years and years. I have pr- prayed that God would uh, take this thing away, and he hasn't. And so they refuse to get up and make the first move what happens Nothing. They remain lame and paralyzed in their addiction. So listen, Christian. The word of God never promises that God is going to take away your desire for sin. It doesn't promise that. It does promise that in Christ you are freed from its power. That's just a promise. It's it's promise engraved in in stone in the word of God. But you must take the first step. This man in Acts 14 took the first step. You do not see him being pushed up by some invisible force. You don't see the levitation sort of deal. You know, that's what Satan does. Go, go watch Exorcist. Uh, actually, no, don't. <laughs> don't watch Exorcist. Don't, don't go do that. Well, my pastor told me to go see it. No, no, don't, don't see Exorcist. But, but listen, our friends in Haiti tell us that the levitation thing, that's what happens in voodoo ceremonies. It really does. People we love, know, and respect see that happen. Eyewitness. That's a Satan thing. God calls us into relationship, not into bondage, where we live by faith. It's, it's, it's a dual relationship. In a, a relationship between Satan and a person, it's a one-way relationship. He, they're in bondage to Satan. With the Lord, we are in relationship. It's a two-way relationship. So here he takes the first uh, step, actually, no, he gets up, he was on the ground. It says he leaped 
and he walked. Verse 11 says, now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, obviously the way these people respond here was wrong, right? More on that later. But Believe it or not, there's actually something we can learn from this. Uh, th- these people, they're obviously dumbfounded and amazed by this miracle. Th- they are amazed. Uh, but guess what? So should we be when we read this account. You know, the last thing you want to do when you're reading the Word of God in a miracle like this, you don't want to read it like, like you know, the morning paper. Oh, you know, the, a, a, a layman was raised on Main Street. Ho-hum. Can't wait till I get to the sports section sort of deal. Th- that is not wh- how we want to uh, uh, read the Word of God. Oh, that we would pray to the Lord for a sense of awe as we read what the Lord did here. This man who had been lame from his mother's womb. It means he had never walked, ever. So by this time in his life, his muscles, the nerve connections necessary for him to walk, the tendons, the joints, the cartilage in his legs, all had been atrophied down to nothing. And so for this man to go 20 or 30 years lame from the womb, to leaping and walking, God had to create something out of nothing. And and, and that is what our God is all about, creating something out of nothing. You know, in a couple of, uh, actually about a month, we're going to have another presentation by one of our PhD science guys. These guys are men and women, they, you know, hide around here, but we find out and we discover who they are on why evolutionary science is problematic and really isn't science at all. Listen, the very reason the theory of evolution was developed in the first place was because of a desire on the part of man to reject the supernatural particularly the idea that God created something out of nothing. And I believe, by the way, it was a carnal desire on on the part of man. Uh, The thinking goes something like this. If it is true that God created something out of nothing, then I need to be accountable to this God, and that is the last thing I want. I don't want to be accountable to anything or anybody. So they have conveniently come up with a theory which allows them to discount anything and everything that is supernatural. Now, today there are many Christians who, are, who themselves have embraced the theory of evolution. And if you ask them why they believe in evolution, they always say the same thing. Well, because, you know, science, obviously science out there proves that uh, evolution is true. Well, listen, if that is you this morning, and, and, and look, I, I, I'm not a knucklehead. I, I don't think you have to reject evolution to be a Christian. But, but you need to, if you're a Christian, you need to consider the implications of what you believe. If that is you this morning, you need to understand that the men and women who have developed the theory of evolution, they reject the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and they do so because uh, in that account, God creates something out of nothing. 
It's supernatural. They reject everything that is supernatural. So they reject it. But please, please understand, they don't stop there. And if you have embraced the theory of evolution, you need to understand the men and women who have come up with this theory, they not only reject the miracles in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created something out of nothing, they reject every other miracle in the entire Bible. That's who you're sort of trusting in. You need to understand that and accept it and live with that. John chapter 2, Jesus turning wine into water. He's creating something out of nothing there. There were no grapes in that water. (laughs) Matthew chapter 8, Jesus healing a leper. He's creating something out of nothing. He's creating cells, human cells. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus healing the blind man. Matthew uh, chapter 9 again, Jesus healing the paralytic. Again, all these, God creating something out of nothing. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus healing the man withered, uh, with a withered hand. He's creating something out of nothing. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He's, he's, uh, he's creating something out of nothing. So here's my point. When you embrace the theory of evolution... You are placing your trust in a theory developed by men and women who not only reject the miracles of Genesis 1 and 2, they also reject every other miracle in the Bible, including, by the way, of course, the resurrection, which begs this question, which you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to ask yourself this question. If you are convinced that the scientists are right when they reject the miracles in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 where God created something out of nothing, why aren't you convinced that they're right about every other miracle in the Bible where God created something out of nothing, including this miracle right here in Acts chapter 14? How many people have asked themselves that question and they have lost their faith? Others, many others, millions now are, you know, really, they're not even asking that question honestly. They're laying hold of evolution because they want not to be accountable to anything. This is the theory that you're embracing. Now, the tragedy is that all these folks have done so not knowing that the science backing up the evolutionary theory is really shoddy. Not, and they don't know, they're not knowing that the science supporting the Genesis creation account is really persuasive. And we had our own very own Nathaniel Jensen, uh, who is a Harvard PhD in biology, uh, here a year ago last August, uh, show us that the science behind creation, the presentation uh, about a month from now, we're going to reach, when we reach Acts 17, uh, we'll do it. By the way, my pace, we'll probably won't do it for six months. But anyway, I'm really going to try in about a month. I'm I'm not going to give you his name. I'm going to keep you in suspense. Uh, But uh, anyway, he's part of our church family here. Uh, Also a PhD in biology. But uh, here, God creating something out of nothing. Tendons, muscles, cartilage, nerve connections out of nothing. And we need to be in awe of this. You certainly didn't have to convince the Lyconian people here. Again, it says in verse 11, they're crying out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Then in verse 12, it says, and Barnabas called Zeus and Paul 
Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes was um, a, a speaker, uh, one of the gods, one of the many gods uh, that the Romans have, and he was a spokesman for Zeus. And so they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul, since he was uh, speaking, they called in Her- Hermes. Verse 13, then the priest of Zeus, who is whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the very same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to, uh, to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the, uh, the things that are in them. There goes that pesky little creation story again. Uh, verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So these guys from Antioch and Iconium, I tell you, Do people have anything better to do with their time? This is 120 miles away. And these people can't get to bed at night thinking that, you know, Paul and Barnabas are taking their message to other cities. 120 miles is a long way 2,000 years ago. But they came down and, and they... Uh, they basically, they actually, they stirred up the crowd and they stoned Paul. And they... And then it says, supposing he was dead. Now, in 2 Corinthians, we read a story there about Paul actually going to heaven. Many believe it's from this verse uh, right here. Uh, but anyway, he, he, verse 20, he rises up and he goes back into the city. Uh, makes me, you know, we need to read this and really ask ourselves, what does it take for me to back off? You know, from the will of God. Uh, this, is, this is really powerful stuff here. Uh, but, you know, I read this, and I, I, I read this story here, and you see the, you see, you know what this is? This is an example of a multitude turning a pastor into celebrity here. It's the same thing you see today. And, you know, it's scary to me when I see a multitude today uh, turn a pastor preacher into celebrity because of this kind of thing that I read in Acts chapter 14. And, and, and really, what, you, what is really the case is that there's really v- not a whole lot of difference. Because people put pastors on pedestals and they make them into superstars because their faith is so shallow, shallow like this multitude here. I mean, look at this mob. In verse 18, it says, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. I mean, what zeal. But it's amazing that 
they were trying to sacrifice to them, turning them into gods, even though in no way had they embraced Paul's message. And the same thing happens today. People will be declaring the word of God. And people will turn the declarers into little demagogues, but they won't embrace their word. And what happens? As soon as there's opposition in their life, as soon as there's another wind of doctrine that comes uh, around or a popular, uh, some sort of popular thing or persecution, oh man, they wind up turning against the very thing or people that they uh, were worshiping. It's a scary thing to see when a multitude turns a pastor into a pedestal. These people did not even embrace the message of the very man they were trying to sacrifice to. So what was his message anyway? Tell you, this is a three-verse message, but it's a great message. Verse 15, Paul says to them, man, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the very same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Now, obviously, they had not embraced that message. You know, when I see a multitude today rever and and adore and turn a religious figure into God-like status, it it, it does make me wonder, you know, is the case with them... Is it the case with them as it was the case with these people right here that they have never turned from the useless things to serve the living God? Listen, God is not interested in being added to whatever else is in your life. God wants to be your life. If that is all your experience with that your experience with uh, with God has amounted to that you have added him to whatever is in your life I can tell you that your end will be the same end as these men and women in Acts chapter 14 really when the heat is on you will turn against God and his word Now, it's encouraging to me that when the heat was on to a man who really had made God his life, look at what he did. (laughs) Talk about heat on him. It was pelted. Given up for dead. That's just not Paul, brothers and sisters. That is the life of God in him, which is the same as the life of God in you if you've asked Jesus into your life. You know, I grew up in, in Massachusetts, moved away when I was nine, spent my summers here, but family lived in a number of different places, including South America, where Roman Catholicism was very strong there. And one of the dangers of Roman Catholicism uh, in some of these countries, I was in Venezuela, is they, they really allow their adherence to sort of add on to, add on to the Roman Catholic faith. But, you know, Roman Catholic faith, Protestant faith, or whatever, this is, this is a real, real problem. 
where people are just sort of trying to add God on. And, and even though Jesus says in all four Gospels, if you lose your life for me, you will gain it. If you don't lose your life for me, you will lose it. Jesus doesn't want you to add him to your life. He wants to be your life. Now, this sermon here, this three-verse sermon, actually has some other wonderful things, profound things in it. Again, it says in verse 16, it says, it says, God, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. So he's telling these people. He, he's giving them a, a message here. He's saying, look, in bygone generations, God allowed you guys and every other nation to walk in your own ways. Verse 17, nevertheless... He did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And so, you know, this, this, those two little verses actually answer some pretty profound questions that you hear all the time. You often hear people ask, if God is a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? How many times do you hear that? People justify not following God, not believing the word of God, because there's so much suffering in the world. Verse 16 actually addresses that question. It says that God in bygone generations in the past has allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. And, and, and so God has allowed man, still does by the way, <clears throat> to do his own thing. That's always what love does, by the way. Love demands a choice. There is a word that describes when love is forced on someone. What is it? Rape. God's not in the business of raping. He's in the business of loving. And the one thing no human being wants to give up is their choice to love. And God gives us that choice. He allows the nations. He allows us to make a choice. He doesn't force his love uh, on, uh, on anyone. I didn't put a gun to Stephanie's head and say, hey, you know, show up at the altar to marry me, baby. You know, I didn't do that. She chose to marry me. Praise the Lord. In her own free will, although it is a true story that she did have to be pushed down the aisle because she was like frozen there. A lady came up from behind her and pushed her, so she sort of stumbled out. Really, that really did happen. But but <laughs> if I if I forced my kids to love me and obey me, what kind of love would that be? The Department of Social Services would be showing up at my house. You know, uh, I, I handcuff them and and take them to the store to buy me presents and I. I, I birthday presents, and I, 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 you know, put them around the table and, and hand, you know, or chain them uh, to the chair, you know, sing me happy birthday. You know, what kind of birthday party would that be? The relationship between father and child is a wonderful one. Of course, it can be a terrible one. You know, I go to pastor's conferences and, and, and men's retreats and uh, other Christian conferences, and one of the things that they always uh, 
ask if people need any prayer for us. Do any of you have prodigal sons or daughters? Just the wrenching pain that parents have when their kids walk away from the Lord. And just the, the, having to see them suffer, having to see their kids suffer in whatever life they have chosen to embrace, and then all the consequences start adding up. Would anyone ever have the gall to go to, to, to say, you know, if that parent were, if, if he was a father or mother who loved their kid, why would he allow their kid to go? That's re- that would be ridiculous. Their kids, you know, have a free choice once they leave the home to embrace whatever they want to, uh, uh, to, to embrace. And so it says in verse 16, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So listen. Brothers and sisters, here's the deal. Even though the nations walked in their own ways and rejected God, he blessed their socks off anyway. That's what it says. He gives them rain from heaven. He fruitful seasons, uh, you know, filling their hearts with, with food and gladness. He, he gives man beautiful sunsets uh, to marvel over. He gives them mountains uh, to ski on. He gives them waves to surf on, lakes to swim in. He uh, gives Italian restaurants to them to stuff their faces and, oh, man, it's just good. You know, these meatballs and gnocchi and spaghetti and, uh, you know, planes to soar through the skies and uh, music to rejoice in, you know, burgers at you burger, whatever. It, it says that he has, he, it says there, it says he's filled their hearts with food and gladness. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 45, your father in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain to the just and the unjust. The real question is this. How could, rather, rather the real question is not how could God, uh, God allow, allow bad things in the world. The real question is this. Why does God still bless man in such an abundant way? Filling his heart with food and gladness, verse 17 says, when he has rejected God, when he has so utterly rejected thing, him and brought all kinds of bad stuff on his own life, why does God still continue to bless his heart, it says, with, with food and gladness? Well, the answer is this, God is love. It says in verse 17, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that draws us to him. He loves us. He wants a relationship with us And that's why he continues to just uh, love the world, the the, the wicked and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, and even giving them everything that they need for for gladness. And 
And, you know, we have actually, we're going to do communion uh, this morning. Actually, if, if Rick or the worship team uh, could, could come up. And, you know, the, the communion table was given us as a table of remembrance. We are, when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the, Paul is talking about communion there, he said, he tells them, remember. Jesus says, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember. Remember what? Remember the goodness of God. Remember that he did all the work necessary for you to go into an everlasting relationship uh, with him. And that there's nothing that you can add to it. He lived the perfect life for you. And then he died for you. We have a choice. Every man and woman has a choice. After living a life on planet Earth where, you know, God has given them good, verse 17 says, rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling their hearts with uh, food and gl gladness. They have a choice of, of whether to really to accept the hand of the creator, where that all came from, and accept that it was God's son who paid the penalty for the sin that they themselves really deserve death and hell for forever. So they have a choice. Do I accept the free gift of salvation, this grace, which puts me on the level playing field with the most righteous person who ever lived, actually even Jesus. We're put on the level playing field with him. We're given the righteousness of Christ. Or do I approach God with my own good works, which the Bible says are as filthy rags because they're all tainted with their own selfish motives. Every, even the best good work that a man or woman has is tainted by their own selfish motives. We have a choice. Jesus says when we're taking communion, remember that. You know, this morning, every time we go to, to communion, actually, if you've been asked uh, to pray, to be a prayer uh, partner, if you could come to the front now. This morning, if you, Jesus, when he gave the communion to us, he gave it to the body of Christ. He didn't give it to everyone. If you've never come to the place in your life where you've lost your life for Jesus' sake, if, if you have just added Jesus to your life but never made him your life, for, for the first uh, 21 years of my life, I I, all I did, all I had done was add Jesus to my life. I didn't make him my life. If you've never made him your life, while the worship team, while Rick plays here, come up and pray with us. Or maybe you are in bondage. Maybe you've been on the ground like that lame and paralyzed man. And you, there's something in your life that is just, it's, you're bound in it. Maybe you're bound in an in a ungodly relationship. Maybe you're bound in alcohol or bound to your career or bound to some philosophy or education or whatever. Come up and pray. Or if there's bitterness, you're bound in bitterness or unforgiveness, come up and pray. Or if, listen, if there's just any burden on your heart, the Bible says that before communion, let, let a man, let a woman prepare themselves. Let a, man, let a man or woman examine themselves. And it's just a time to, to pray and seek the Lord and get his peace. 
Bible says, as we lift our anxieties to God with thanksgiving. The peace that passes all, all understanding will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And we want to go to the communion table with peace. So, Rick, why don't you uh, begin? And if anyone who would like prayer, please come up. And at your leisure, we have communion tables, uh, I think three of them in the back. At your leisure, while the worship team is playing or Rick is playing, you can just go back and get the elements. And come back to your seat. We'll take communion together. <laughs>